I'm writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And I'm game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is Ken and Robin and our special guest Simon Rogers talk about stuff. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. This is a live edition of our podcast in which we will create an Uber Ask Ken and Robin segment in which we rely on you to supply us with the ideas and huts that we will be entering for the course of this podcast in the magnificent splendor of the Kensington Town Hall. Uh, If things flag, we will either introduce our own topics or perhaps begin to pass municipal legislation. (laughs) I have some ideas on uh, how the water system ought to be run here in Kensington, so uh, perhaps we can get into those in greater detail. but uh, uh, first, I thought uh, we would give our sponsor and behind-the-scenes organizer time to uh, do some overt plugging of uh, Pelegrane Press and Pro Fantasy uh, products, as opposed to the covert plugging that permeates our entire podcast. So, uh, uh, Simon, uh, let me throw it over to you and ask you to uh, tell us what's up with Pelegrane and Pro Fantasy these days. Well, other than that... Uh sponsoring an award-winning podcast. A Golden Geek Award-winning podcast. Please let me speak. (laughs) Um, What's new? Well, first of all, what's new is that um, we are now employing um, Ken full-time, which is a a great marvel, I think, really. (laughs) Um, there's not really enough Ken to go round, and I'm, it's, it's nice that I've got all the Ken to, <laughs> to go around via Pelgrane. Um, as far as uh, new stuff coming out is concerned, we've got 13th Age, uh, which is Rob Hainsu and Jonathan Tweet's uh, amazing uh, fantasy game, um, which will be coming out in March next year. The, the final version is written and is available for pre-orders. Um, we've got tons of... Uh, Mythos stuff now that that, that uh, Ken is working full time, and also Robin is working on um, uh, a Dreamland supplement against my better judgment. Um, uh, born here at this very event last yes, year, yes, where yes, some indeed. clever person who wasn't even planted in the audience asked mm. if there would be a Dreamland segment, and I just happen to have the perfect concept, despite Simon's inexplicable loathing of the Dreamlands. Put it, put it this way, I want to play it. So that's probably, probably a good sign. Um, and as far as Pro Fantasy is concerned, uh, the, the main thing that's happened over the past year is just the extraordinary increase in output from our uh, map makers, our customers, and the extraordinary increase in quality of them. I've, I'm startled by it, really. Uh, the, every, every month we produce a new map-making style, um, and people are just making amazing use of them to create really, really beautiful maps. Um, and so next year we're doing uh, a 3D, an update to Perspectives called uh, Perspectives 3 with beautiful artwork, uh, a new version of Character Artist. And, and what is Perspectives? Um, it's 
for producing 3D uh, um, isometric views of, of dungeons and floor plans, there's a lovely map down on the <coughs> trade stand if people want to have a look at it. And that's a small selection of stuff that we will be doing. So at this point, we will segue into the Uber Ask Ken and Robin segment. So the question is, with what degree of laser-eyed precision are we monitoring uh, Call of Cthulhu 7? And uh, to what extent are we planning to uh, rip them off and or castigate them? <laughs> as seen in second edition Trail of Cthulhu. And uh, at the Pelgrane Summit held yesterday, there was much talk of second edition Trail of Cthulhu. Ken, perhaps you can enlighten us. Uh, I, I, I begin this as a consummate fan of Sandy Peterson's first draft, not even so much the first edition of Call of Cthulhu, which by itself is the greatest role-playing game ever published, but Sandy's first draft of the first edition of Call of Cthulhu, which was never published and is therefore the greatest role-playing game never published. Uh, to the extent that I could, in Trail, I attempted to make it possible to play as closely as one could to Sandy's original vision. So I, I, I pay attention to the Call of Cthulhu 7th development in the same way that I've paid attention to the development of Call of Cthulhu for virtually my entire role-playing life. Uh, you know, since, I mean, I started with D&D before there was Call of Cthulhu, but the instant Call of Cthulhu came out, I never looked back. So my concern with 7th edition CFC is more my concern as a Call of Cthulhu fanboy and less my concern as a Trail of Cthulhu designer. Uh, I am I'm gratified to see that they've taken on board some of the things that, uh, that, that, that Robin has signposted in terms of uh, scenario design. I'm interested in some of the things that they're, they're doing and less interested in others of the things they're doing as a player of Call of Cthulhu. As the designer of Trail of Cthulhu, I think we have basically left the, the main body of Chaosium design tradition and we're carrying in our rule set what I considered at the time I wrote Trail of Cthulhu First Edition to be the core uh, quality features of, of Sandy's design. So what uh, you know, what Paul and, and Mike are doing is going to, I'm sure, be terrific. But it's not really relevant to Trail anymore. So uh, in, in terms of Trail of Cthulhu Second, it's not going to be a response to Call of Cthulhu Seventh. It's more going to be a response to Ashen Stars and Knights Black Agents and uh, all of the other gumshoe play and gumshoe experience that has developed since 2008 or whenever it was that we did uh, Trail the first time. And we've got years and years and years of, of, uh, of lived experience of how to play Trail of Cthulhu now. We know more about designing gumshoe than we did back then. So to the extent Trail Second is a response to anything, it's going to be a response to Ashen Stars and to Nice Black Agents. And so in that sense, it's going to Incorporate some lessons learned from those design experiences and uh, lessons learned as far as how to present uh, gumshoe to both new and experienced gumshoe players. I think we're going to have a, a chance to sort of take it, make it less an ambassador uh, product in the sense of helping people over the, the, the step of, of playing gumshoe and more a integrated play, call, uh, play Cthulhu the gumshoe way product. So I, I think that's really more our goal with Trail Second. Uh, th th there's obviously, you know, specific you know, things that anyone could predict. Like we're going to take the uh, magic system that I came up with too late to be in the core book, and it had to be in Rough Magics, and that's now going to be the magic system in Trail Second. There are various things that I'm eager to try just experimentally in terms of presenting the mythos 
that Simon will either you know step on my neck or encourage me to do depending on word count and time or both. Uh, constraints or both. And, and now that you're his full-time employee, he has so much more leverage over you. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I'm I'm sure that he is even now waiting to uh, find the limits of his power over me. <laughs> that makes me sound like Rasputin. <laughs> uh, but R- Rasputin was unkillable, Simon. Yes. <laughs> And oh, eerily I can, charismatic. I can die here in front of you. If you <laughs> yes. ask, it won't be a problem. <laughs> uh, Simon has suggested that he would like a segment called "Simon uh, Rebuts All of the Things Said About Simon" in previous episodes of the podcast. So yes. we, we could get to that as well later. That would be Simon reads out a pre-prepared statement. Yes. <laughs> I thought it was Simon Responds Ineffectually. I'm that so well, confused as to what the title of this segment well, is. Well, Ineffectually is taken as rad. Yeah. Uh, next question. The uh, question was, what would I do differently were I to uh, design Feng Shui now? Uh, the, Feng Shui historically was based on a uh, rule set uh, that was originally developed by Jose Garcia for uh, a game called Nexus the Infinite City, which I then took and adapted and uh, streamlined to a, a style of action movie uh, role playing. And it is uh, basically a traditionally structured uh, rule set that then uh, was considered uh, groundbreaking, mostly for the advice that it gives you uh, on how to break away from then dominant strains of uh, role-playing thought. So, for example, it tells you that you can let players specify what's in the room where the fight is taking place so they can take those objects and hit each other with them. Um, And that was actually a big deal in 1994 or 5 or whenever that was, that you would have the temerity to describe an object in what was then considered to be the GM's environment. Well, of course, after uh, 20 years of uh, role-playing development, the idea of giving players considerable narrative power uh, is... uh, you know, just sort of a basic assumption of how we do things. So a new version of Feng Shui uh, would uh, take those assumptions about how uh, the relationship between the GM and player work and update them. So I I do not have, uh, even given Ken's time machine, I would not get in Ken's time machine and go back and significantly redesign Feng Shui from the ground up. So a hypothetical second edition of Feng Shui, which we are not quite ready to announce, but might not be an impossibility, uh, would leave in place that rule structure, but uh, I hear it. Kobolds are attempting to break into Kensington Town Hall. Uh, But for... That's right. Uh, it's, it's that monkey. Yes. Uh, well, I, I hope they're first edition kobolds because they're easier to kill. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I guess the answer to the question is that I would see a new version of Feng Shui as uh, an incremental update that reflected the, the fact that, for example, the handover... Uh, of Hong Kong to China has long since happened and there have been a lot more movies that would go in the bibliography and that the uh, rules advice would uh, present itself uh, recognizing the 
influence that the previous rules advice had, has had, but that the core system I would not want to mess with very much because there's still people who consider that to be their favorite of my games uh, because it is a more traditional style design with more crunchiness in it. Although on a level of crunchiness, it is nowhere near as crunchy as a lot of other games that people also still really enjoy playing. Next question. So the question is, uh, A, how blown away was I by the success of Hillfolk? And since you can tell from where I put the goal of making Drama System uh, open access at 12K, uh, and we made 94K, uh, you can tell how, I guess, uh, mathematically, I was blown away by a factor of five. Um, And the next question is, should Kickstarter allow you to impose an upper limit Uh, Perhaps uh, call that the go away, we're tired number. Um, And I can't imagine anyone wanting to impose an upper limit on things. You could sort of naturally do that by just saying, go away, we're tired, I've run out of stretch goals, or this product is as awesome as we can possibly make it, now we're just going to sell you more of them. Uh, So I don't see why you would need to make that a a mechanical add-on to Kickstarter. But a lot of the things that are now practice standard practice in Kickstarter are not actually supported or suggested by Kickstarter. So, for example, the whole idea of add-ons is just something that has evolved and I think is brought in by the adventure gaming side of things. And as gamers, when we are given a tool, the first thing we do is start to monkey with it and create expansion packs for it. Um, and that's exactly what people have done with a lot of things that they do with Kickstarter. And so you could certainly, with the minimal parameters that Kickstarter gives you now build in a stop point. Um, You could do that as a strategy perhaps even to get people to buy in and say, you know, once we've sold uh, X number of copies, this is just a limited edition thing and we're never going to sell this product in any any other form and losers, weepers, you'd better jump in quickly. Uh, I can't quite imagine a business model from which that product would make sense. Well, you get a similar effect with uh, something like Greg's uh, ransoming, where he would do a thing uh, where... He, Greg Stolze, Greg Stolze who, uh, writes a lot of interesting fiction and is a stone skin press uh, contributor. Yes, and, and he he does a thing where, and he used to do it before there was Kickstarter, if he makes a certain amount of money, he gives the product away for free. And I think he does that still on some of his Kickstarters, that once it reaches a certain uh, ceiling, he's going to put it up on his website, and that's sort of the stretch goal. And I guess that's sort of a self-fulfilling version of what you're talking about, the stop giving me money. I don't believe in stop giving me money. I think that that seems like it's against the point of giving in money. It's, <laughs> it's, it's positively un-American, certainly. Right, yeah. My, my feeling about it is if you're doing a product that is scalable, like a book or a piece of software, I can't think of any reason why you shouldn't keep offering it to people while they still want it, because the way that you would have a limit is that people no longer want it or the Kickstarter's finished. So it would seem bizarre and counterproductive to put a limit on something like that. If it was, say, I don't know, you were refurbishing a restaurant or you were producing a single item of some kind, a a sculpture, um, then, yes, you could add an upper limit, but it seems like a self-correcting problem, really. I mean, if you had a Kickstarter to exhume the grave of Jimmy Savile, um, presumably there would be a point at which he was fully exhumed and you could exhume him no further. 
and you, you couldn't really add on hit him with a shovel again or whatever. Right. There's only so many times you can hit his remains with a shovel before yeah. they're no longer a remnant. Uh, next question. So this is a question about digital tools uh, that are available in gaming. Which ones work and which ones uh, don't work and need to be re-envisioned? Um, I'll, I'll start by saying that we use uh, very little in the way of digital tools in our gaming. Uh, one of my players uh, uploads uh, campaign descriptions and things like that to Obsidian Portal, which is a uh, website that basically allows you to, to track a campaign and, and provide a central repository for all the GM handouts and character backstory and character diaries and everything else. And that seems to work pretty well for us. I mean, I'm sure that like any interface, it could be made smoother or, or, or whatever, but it, 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 it gives value uh, as far as I'm concerned. I don't play uh, um, you know, on Inferno or, or D20 Tabletop or any of those other sort of virtual game tables, but they seem to get good responses from some people. I know that others of my friends say really great things about Google Plus Hangouts as a way to run games, and I believe there's a Knights Black Agents Google Plus Hangout game that you can find on, on YouTube that someone uploaded all of, and I have not yet had, <laughs> even I, the creator of the game, have not yet had the, 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 the time, really, to watch uh, an, an entire recorded version of my game being played, but I think that it's, you know, it certainly seems to be a, a really functional way to run a game. People uh, do that a great deal. Um, I... I'm uh, personally, I'm the, the wrong guy to ask because I started gaming when you know hexagonal graph paper was a new technology, right? It was not anything that you could do to make gaming more uh, more fluid. Besides, don't be drunk during game, and that was that was our killer app for years and years and years. Yeah, don't ask Ken to scan a document. <laughs> um, one of the uh, tools that I think we'll see more in the future is we will see more apps for tablets as tablets become cheaper and therefore ubiquitous. And ultimately, what I would love to see are apps that take the scut work out of traditional side uh, role-playing game rules. Something like a Drama System or even Gumshoe, you don't really need a lot of online tools unless you're actually playing with people online that you're physically distant from. And in that case, you need all of the things that uh, an online tool basically becomes a substitute for things that you would do normally in meat space. So, you know, you would need some way of moving tokens around in drama system or keeping track of the point spends in uh, gumshoe. But really what I would love to see happen eventually, and there are people sort of working on this, but I think they're working on first on the tablet-level platform allowing you to play long distance with each other, are things that uh, mechanize uh, the rules processes for uh, resolution systems. So you could have a complicated combat system that takes all of the figuring out of it, where the app does the figuring, and you are just focused now on making the choices. So you could uh, you know, hit your fight defensively button fight aggressively button, your, uh, you know, outmaneuver button, you know, and hit tactics and let the app do all of the mathematics and crunching and it would be interlinked with everybody else's version of the app so that all of the mathiness would be something that you could either ignore or if you love playing with the numbers part of it that you would, uh, you know, fiddle with before and after sessions to tune your character's abilities but during play you would never even necessarily be rolling a die you would just be hitting a button and it would tell you 
uh, what happened. Now, for a lot of people, that is a terrifying anathema because they love the physical contact of rolling their dice. Uh, they want to be able to interface with the mathiness thing on the fly. But I can envision a next generation of gamers who will look on the idea that you are rolling a die at the game table and ticking things off on your character sheet as being as quaint and weird a story of, of technological innovation as the people who typed in basic programs from magazines in order to make them run. Or the way that um, uh, if you have a, a situation in which the, uh, the, the, the DM can program an encounter that's balanced for his uh, characters, things like that, where it's a lot of interrelated numbers, the computer will sort of provide you with a series of options. You can add, you know, two more kobolds to this before it breaks, or one more uh, a dragonlet or whatever it is. Something like that w w would be tremendously helpful. When I ran uh, third edition Dungeons & Dragons, it, it nearly broke me because I'm no longer 15 with an infinite ability to soak up game mechanics. And it's not that third edition was a bad game, it's a terrific game, but it was just more game than I had the time to play at that point. And something that would have just, you know, you hit a button, you're, uh, you, you type in, you know, I want orcs and I want Sawagin and I want this and I want that, and it spits out, you know, 15 different encounters, that would have been a godsend to me as a, as a GM. Uh, but I, I think Robin is, is right that it, at some point uh, in the future, people are going to say, you hand-built encounters in the same way that, you know, when we read uh, uh, early Heinlein and they're out there in space using their slide rules to solve orbital mechanics. We'll just not even understand why you would do that. Um, I think it's, it's important to distinguish between categories of, of digital tools. Uh, for example, almost everybody now is bringing uh, digital technology to the table in one form or another. For example, running uh, Knight's Black Agents with a, an iPad on the table with, with Google Maps open to be able to zoom down onto rooftops. So could pe you know, characters, you could actually imagine them jumping down into wells and from roof to roof. And that's just uh, existing technology. There are people emailing me spreadsheets that do extraordinary things uh, for character generation all the time. Um, and that's a different thing to enabling people to play together. Uh, now, I, I don't think you can... It's going to be very hard to get anywhere near substituting um, people physically co-located. Uh, you know, you've got Google Hangout, you've got Skype, you've got all these other technologies that are just trying to take the edge off the fact that it's just not going to be quite as good as, as physically being together. But if you're talking about digital applications that are designed specifically for games, <clears throat> that's quite um, a game-specific thing. So, for example, if you're playing a gumshoe game, balancing encounters is, is just not a complicated thing compared with if you're running third or fourth edition D&D or possibly 13th Age. And tools that did that would be extremely useful. I, I know wizards have a, a decent selection of tools. I'm not really sure how good they are. I'm just not familiar with them. Um, but for, for Gumshoe, uh, the things that you would need, uh, we have a, a, a character generator which we kick-started that's available for most of, the, um, of our settings. Um, and for something like Knight's Black Agents, a way of correlating information. At the moment, you, we draw stuff on bits of paper and link arrows between them. Um, 
something, an app that could do that would, would, would be fantastic. And it's just, it's just going to grow and grow. I, I don't like to think that we're ever going to stop rolling dice, though. That would be rather sad. It's quite nice to physically, it's a physical thing. Uh, but I could be wrong. Uh, next question. Uh, it depends on what you mean by recently. Uh, I would say that my favorite game by a long shot that came out this century is Fiasco, uh, which is a phenomenal game. It's a category breaker. It's, one, it's a game where, after having played it, you can't believe that no one ever invented it, but before it was created, you would have had no idea that such a thing was even possible. I, I think that, uh, that, that Fiasco is a phenomenal piece of game design and a phenomenal uh, example of... Of, of creating a new, not even a new market, but a new play space in gaming. So if you're asking me, you know, the one thing that I didn't do, you know, in, like you say recently, I think Fiasco would have to be it for me. It's it just, it, it just unspeakably good. Every time I look at it and every time I play it, I am um, again amazed at how good a game that is. And it's not like Jason Morningstar, you know, had one bright rocket that faded. I mean, everything he's ever done is terrific. He's a super A-class game designer, but... Man, is Fiasco better than everything. It's just phenomenally good. Um, I, uh, sadly, do not get a lot of chance to uh, play things that I am not working on because I'm working on so many different things. Uh, so, uh, for example, I've just wrapped up the local in-house playtest of Dreamhounds of Paris. Uh, before that uh, was a drama system game. Uh, we're going to go back to drama system for a little while. And after that, I may be running some 13th Age, because I'll be working on some 13th Age stuff. Uh, and just because I am so prolific, and because at a convention like this, for example, it is not a great use of my time to go away from the stand to play another undoubtedly awesome game that I would like to familiarize myself with because I need to be at the stand signing books for people and talking to them. Um, so this may be a little out of your time frame, but the, uh, uh, I thought that actually D&D 4E was a brilliant piece of game design. It's one flaw being that for a lot of people it did not feel like D&D. Um, and if it had been created as an alternate D20 product the way that 13th Age is, which of course is being designed by uh, Rob Hainso, who's one of the lead designers on 4E, that it might have uh, gotten a, a better reputation. And certainly there are lots of people who are really into 4E and are still going to continue to play it no matter what D&D Next looks like and no matter what 13th Age is like. But it really moved, the as a designer, I have to say, it really moved the ball forward in terms of breaking down uh, what it is that you needed to be usable in a uh, fantasy level fight, uh, actually finally getting a the math right on uh, character balance and uh, on uh, being able to actually have a challenge system where you can predictably tell what the uh, strength of the, the creatures was against your players and it really improved in a lot of ways uh, but the uh, flaw it had was that it threw aside too many of the things that make D&D a crappy game, but a great entertainment experience were tossed aside. So, for example, the fact that uh, the magic user starts out terrible and traditionally in D&D and then becomes dominant, you would think from a perspective of game design is a really bad choice, but it turns out that people are really invested in that as emblematic of the D&D &D experience. And so the huge game design problem that the 
uh, D&D Next team has is to keep in uh, the idea of game balance that 4E represents while zooming back out to make it more of an entertainment experience and more of a storytelling experience that is not sacrificed in order to make the game part of it work. Um, I get to play uh, unfamiliar games quite a lot because I, I play once a week. Uh, and uh, it's, it's normally S- Steve Dempsey will come up with some obscure, possibly French game for us to try. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but the game that we've played actually quite, quite a lot recently, um, is, it's not even been published yet. I hope it'll be published next year. It's called Quest. Um, and it takes a lot of fiasco-like elements in that you start off with world, uh, world creation, you start off with themes and uh, place, locations. Everybody draws stuff on a map, a, a geographical map as well as a, a theme map. Um, and then you also write quests, and they're, they're not directive. It'll just say something like the golden egg or uh, the, the hell hole or whatever you want. You put them down, put circles on them, and then you grab characters and you put them on the quests. And then you have uh, a narrator who, who is someone other than the person playing the character, and you just narrate the scene. And as soon as somebody thinks there's a point of divergence, the narrator and the player uh, narrate different endings. And then everybody votes. And this is the bit I like about it the best, um, that the vote is secret. You just put a card in of the colour of the person whose story you like the best, and then it's just selected at random. So nobody ever knows how anybody's voting, and it's a matter of probability whether you'll succeed or fail. So there's no judgment at all about who's the best uh, storyteller. And Because it's a quest, everybody knows what a quest is, and when you get to the last circle and you tick it, you know the quest has to, has to resolve, and so the best resolution of the quest is what happens. And you can just keep playing it on and on and on. It's a, it's a, a lovely little game, um, and I think... Uh, the, the, the chap who's written it probably needs um, a little bit of assistance with marketing, but he's got a bunch of people who are all shaking his lapels to, to get him to pull his act, to get his act together. What's his name? Well, there we go. I can't even tell you. That's not good marketing. <laughs> <is it? laughs> John Keyworth. John Keyworth. There we go. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, well, in fact, uh, Peter Atkinson has precisely such a project on the go, and I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say about it except that it's Peter, so he has a budget to do it, and stay tuned. And the question was, to what extent will uh, technological accessibility allow us to see games being played in, as a pedagogical tool of teaching them, right? Yeah, so I apologize yeah. for making that a Karnak the Magnificent style uh, yeah. answer. But. Right. Uh, so the question is, uh, is there the prospect for crossover between uh, emerging AR technologies and traditional tabletop role-playing? And by AR technologies, you mean like uh, the uh, glasses with the display and everything? Um, No. (laughs) I'm sure someone will will attempt to do it. Um, I think there's actually going to be a lot more resistance to AR technology than uh, people who are promoting it think, that we are not only sort of in the infancy of that, but probably in the... Uh, early stage where it first comes out and then dies and then another generation later it comes back. So uh, I don't know. I think we may all be uh, transhuman uh, tentacled mutants before we're uh, actually doing that. Yeah. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> uh, next question. Okay, so uh, Caleb has uh, uh, not only uh, 
have a complicated question, but he's done uh, prop preparation. He's created two stacks of cards for Ken. Ken is supposed to uh, draw random cards and uh, respond to them. Uh, so Ken, uh, uh, everyone at home, envision uh, cards being drawn from two stacks of mini index cards. Many, many, many index cards. It's not a little stacks, by the way. These are, these are, as you can see at home, they're very big. They're James Lipton style stacks of cards. Right, yes. So the uh, from the deck labeled Nerd, I turn up the Spanish Inquisition. And from the deck labeled I'm very surprised to see that come up. Yes. <laughs> and they say audiences are hard. <laughs> and from trope I turn up Illuminati, which feels like cheating. <laughs> really, right? I mean Wait, they all say I Spanish Inquisition and Illuminati. They all say Illuminati. This is the I mean, the, 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 fundamentally, one of the things that the Spanish Inquisition did during its long lifetime hunt out was a group um, uh, of uh, what they called the Alumbrados, which was a Spanish sect of esoteric masonry. As you, uh, as you no doubt recall, uh, Freemasonry was banned by the Catholic Church uh, for its many habits, amongst them egalitarianism and Protestantism. Uh, and there was a Spanish sect of the Illuminati, or a, or a parallel uh, development, depending on how you read the, the, the historical documents, uh, called the Alumbrados, the, the Illuminated Ones. And the Inquisition, one of their jobs was to hunt them to extinction. And so it's not even nerd troping. This is just slightly esoteric history. So on, on that grounds, I'm going to take these and discard them and draw again. Be gone, cards. Be gone. Samurai from Nerd. Sword? Wait a minute. What? And here we are. Hollow Earth from Trope. And that's much better. And uh, this, of course, is going to uh, have to bring us into World War II, uh, unless someone is more familiar with Japanese legendary involving a hollow earth than I am, which is not hard. Uh, but uh, I would suggest that this one is, uh, you, you take the, the old uh, mode of the, um, uh, of the guy who's hiding out on the, de on the desert island, he doesn't, doesn't know the war's over because the word never got to him. Well, obviously what happened is, there was a, and this is actually historically true, there was a Japanese spy who went to Tibet around 1901-1902, and he may or may not have been connected with the, the mystical Black Ocean Society, which was a group that believed that Japan had a uh, divine right to conquer everything uh, on, the, uh, on the shores of the Black Ocean, the Pacific. But what we understand is that the esoteric meaning of the Black Ocean is the ocean on the inside of the Earth, right? The, in, the, the ocean where uh, there is no sun visible, and so it is the Black Ocean. And so this uh, Japanese spy went to Tibet learned the secrets of Agartha from the Tibetan masters there and over the period of time from 19, I think it's 1902, 1901 that he goes to Tibet to World War II Japan was building this immense uh, uh, base of, of samurai elite warriors to, uh, to, uh, to harness the powers of the Black Ocean inside the Hollow Earth. But, of course, come 1944, the United States uh, Army Air Corps flies overhead, firebombs the entire island, including the thing that allows them to transmit to the Hollow Earth. So... These guys are cut completely off. The last thing they hear is, everything's going great. We just took Burma back from the, from the British. The uh, emperor will reign a thousand years. Uh, the, the, the craven Americans are, are, are uh, having themselves cut to pieces on Tarawa and Iwo Jima. There's not a chance in hell that the home islands will be threatened. We're winning in China. 
Oh, got to go. Something up in the sky. Click. <laughs> so the samurai have been there in the hollow earth since 1944, just building up and waiting for the word uh, to come down that it's their time to come sort of storming out and take over the, the world, which has been basically turned into a giant co-prosperity sphere by the Black Ocean Society, by the Genyosha on the surface. Well, you know, at X point in history for your campaign... Someone, you know, the, the, the vast amount of random crap being broadcast uh, over the various electromagnetic networks uh, by the Internet, you know, uh, 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 the, 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 um, the, the, those things that uh, just randomly accumulate content and then put it into Google to fool you into clicking on it so you can buy Viagra or whatever. <laughs> One of those just happens to hit the go message for the samurai in the hollow earth and it gets broadcast and sure enough the doors open on whatever lost pacific island was the gateway to the hollow earth and out they come riding dinosaurs of course well that's, like i need to tell you as, as need not be said yes i said hollow earth and samurai right yeah i think um, at this point it would be useful for me to give an insight into the publishing process. So could, could you pass the right, okay, okay, all right, please. yes. Okay, so insight into publishing process. Okay, here Handing right. the nerd pile to Simon. Thank you. Handing the trope pile to Simon. Yes. Here we go. All right. The nerd, we have Creek War. And in the trope, we have Goblins. <laughs> Hello, Robin. Uh, Robin. Hey, Simon, how you doing? I've got this really, really good idea for a game. It's a bit loose, but I wondered if you could do something with it. It's like goblins and like creek wall. Oh yeah, I and see how to do that. Uh, how many words? Together, uh, twenty-five thousand words. Twenty-five thousand. Uh, uh, August, just before Gen Con, okay. Mm, a couple of weeks before Gen Con is fine, no problem. Okay, yeah, you, you'll have it. There you go. <laughs> Although I would like to compliment Simon on having actually drawn the premise of Alhu Creek and then <laughs> not plugging it. That was, no, that was amazing yeah. to me. That, 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 that's more amazing than any Hollow Earth samurai you, you make. <laughs> right. Although the tradition of inexplicably failing to plug uh, Owl uh, Hoot uh, Trail Owl Hoot while trail, talking right, about yes. something where one ought to do so uh, is now uh, segment, uh, cemented in our tradition as we did that in our most recently yes. dropped podcast as well. Mm -hmm. So, yes, another exciting Western game is Owl Hoot Trail, soon to come from Pelgrane Press. Uh, next question. What's Owl Hoot Trail, Simon? <laughs> this is a question from uh, Steve Dempsey, who's recently recovered from a traumatic incident in the lavatory, where he was released with a sledgehammer. Are you feeling all right, Steve? Uh, he, apparently he is feeling all right. He's looking a bit pale, but he is feeling all right. Um, he looks the same to me <laughs> in, his, in his pre- and post-traumatized state. Owl Hoot Trail is another one of those games that uh, Steve downloaded... Uh, uh, from the internet. It's written by Clinton R. Nixon, um, and he was just g giving it out for people to play test. Uh, and we had such fun putting on stupid American accents and pretending to be cowboys uh, that I thought it'd be lovely to publish the game, so I emailed Clinton and he agreed. And then uh, he worked on it a bit, and then he, um, life got in the way. So uh, I asked uh, an almost perfect human being, uh, Kevin Culp, if he would. Uh, do something with it. It was in his wheelhouse. It was, definitely <laughs> in his wheelhouse. Um, <clears throat> and he's just done amazing things with it. Uh, he, I've passed it back to Clinton, and Clinton is now completely enthused about it, is running it, and is going to be promoting it like mad. It's such a fun game, it really is. So you've discussed process. What is the actual content of this game? 
Well, it's a it's a, a fantasy uh, meets Wild West game um, where you play all the the fantasy races uh, and equivalents of, of fantasy classes um, with fairly simple uh, D twenty rules. Um, uh, an example of something that that, that Kevin's done with uh, the rules is what would what would a harpy be in uh, in the Wild West? And the answer is is that it's a a very very clever uh, vulture. So the the harpies will be spoiling your water. Uh, they'll be digging holes in the the ground in the road, waiting for your uh, your horse's leg to break, and then personally mocking you before trying to eat you. Um, so he has that kind of take on all, all of the, the the fantasy mythology. Uh, next question. Uh, Guy and Reach is uh, done and in the queue for layout. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, the person who's laying it out has currently been reassigned to laying out uh, 13th Age. Uh, but we're also we're pulling in illustrations at the moment as well. So I'm hoping it will be out June next year. And so for those of you who are not familiar with Guy and Reach, this is the... Uh, new science fiction game from Pelgrane that will uh, adapt the science fiction work of Jack Vance, or at least the uh, big chunk of it that is set in his uh, Gaian Reach setting. Uh, initially, we thought that this would be a skullduggery game with some gumshoe flavor, but once I read the uh, die, uh, the Gaian Reach books, I saw that they were actually structured quite differently than the Dying Earth books that led to the skullduggery rule set, and that actually it was much more investigative uh, than uh, about the ups and downs and swindles and changes of fortune. And so now it is uh, skullduggery-flavored uh, gumshoe rather than the other way around. And the first session of the game, you all collectively imagine who Quandos Vorn, your interstellar nemesis, is uh, what he did to you, why it's going to be extremely hard for you to wreak vengeance on him, and uh, once you, a whole group of players has answered those two questions, they have their backstories in place, and they have projected the entire uh, direction of the campaign as they attempt to overcome the obstacles that they have created for themselves, and then the GM improvises a campaign based on who Quandos Vorn is, and uh, we had a lot of fun with that in the in-house uh, play test, and uh, I think it'll be a fun uh, variant of uh, gumshoe and space to complement the more sort of straight up and encompassing uh, take on SF that, uh, or space opera that you see in Ashen Stars. Uh, another question. So the question is, uh, for future 13th Age products after the main book and the 13 True Ways uh, source book, uh, what are the future plans, and do they incorporate other unmet stretch goals from the 13 True Ways Kickstarter? Um, I haven't specifically been looking at those stretch goals as things that, that we might do. I, I mean, it's more likely, if they happen, that, that Rob and Jonathan will do them because, because they want to do them. Um, what we've got planned, first of all, is a, a bestiary. Um, we're bringing in all of the everything we've learned from creating creatures uh, in our other lines, um, starting with, with the dying earth, the different speculations of the different kinds of, of creatures and what they're like, uh, and then moving on to trail, where there are also different interpretations of everything. But specifically for 13th Age, creatures will look different according to which... Uh, icon, the icons are the, the main powers of the world, according to which icon they serve. So you'll get a big double page spread with, uh, 
kind of uh, sages' opinions of the creatures and with what, how they'll look different according to which of the icons they'll serve, including at least one completely off-the-wall icon you wouldn't expect, like what do goblins who serve the Ark Mage look like? Um, and uh, obviously you'll get stat blocks for all of them. Um, and we'll also have depowered versions of things or up, super-powered versions of things. So if you want your first-level characters to fight a dragon, there'll be some crippled dragon that they can, they can fight. Um, so we'll be doing the best tree. We're also doing a... Uh, well, Robin's doing a city book uh, based on, uh, the, again, on the Dying Earth uh, client uh, supplement where the players... Uh, it's a guidebook for the players. So the, the, the PCs know their city and they get the book and they can say, well, I'm going to go and see this guy and I've got a contact over here. And I think that will fit in really well, well with the kind of icon background that you get um, in 13th Age. And then, of course, we need to do a big campaign to take characters from lower levels up to higher levels. There are some difficulties with that because of the uh, 13th Age. It, it, uh, there's a lot of input from the players, a lot of story and indie type uh, input, character input. So we'll have to work out how we're going to structure that so that it still works. Uh, but we've got lots of stuff in the pipeline. Uh, another question. So the question is, how does uh, Kickstarter empower uh, publishing and how does it empower writers uh, to get more material out than they would ordinarily have done? Um, well, I, it would seem straightforward to take uh, Drama System as an example, uh, mainly because it was not immediately obvious that we were going to, um, to kickstart it. So I have to think to myself... How in in that Kickstarter was not really a thing when no. I started designing it. Um, in that, I'm imagining to myself how it would have done had we put it on pre-order. Um, it was definitely a game where we were going to uh, share revenue rather than it be a work for hire project. So um, the question is, how would it have done? And it would have been a 96-page perfect bound book that I would have put out for pre-order, that it probably would have sold three or 400 copies, that I would have, it then would have gone into uh, the retail chain and probably sold 1,000 copies altogether, although I would never have been sure that it would have done, so the production values would not be... You know, they'd be fine, they'd be a, it'd be a black and white perfect bound book. So we then look at that and think about Kickstarter. Now the Kickstarter goal would have got us to the same place we would have been uh, had we not done that well in pre-orders. In other words, it would pay for the writing, it would get the book out there. So in the case of our Kickstarter at least, it's patently obvious what that has done both for the writer and for the publisher which is that the, what they're getting is two full-colour hardback books with series pictures from 64 different uh, authors uh, with stretch goals that included um, uh, uh, an open licence version of both Gumshoe and of uh, Drama System itself. Um, and I think it's, it's really transformed things. But from a publisher perspective, the thing that uh, Kickstarter does more than anything else is kill the dreams of people who are publishing games that are not going to be popular at an earlier stage, rather than killing their dreams and costing them a lot of money. So it stops people printing massive offset runs of books that they're never, ever going to sell. So, so it merely crushes your soul, but leaves your bank yes. account intact. Right. Um, well, I feel that as we draw to a close here that we've had not quite enough Ken, so what I'm going to do is go back to Caleb's 
pile of nerd tropes and have Ken draw another set to riff upon, concluding our exciting first live podcast. Okay. And by live, we mean pre-recorded so that you can listen to this while you're doing the dishes later. It's live in your area. From the nerd pile, we have the War of the First Coalition. I have to say, I approve of um, uh, the, the, the thoroughness with which the nerd pile was assembled from the Encyclopedia of Military History. Uh, and trope, Magical Apocalypse, which <laughs> initially you would think, that seems odd that attacking Napoleon would trigger a magical apocalypse. But on the other hand, something has to. And why not? Uh, why, why not have your magical apocalypse at the, at the point in which um, uh, you, you're basically in that, that sort of, uh, I, I don't want to say magical, but that sort of world of great potential, right? Napoleon has, has uh, by the time of the War of the First Coalition, he is, uh, I, think, I think he's just gone to Egypt or he's just come back from Egypt. This is the one that happens right before, uh, I mean, the Peace of Amiens is 1803, and I forget if that's the first or the second coalition, but you're, you're very early in Napoleon's career. So my, my notion would be that the magical apocalypse obviously is something that gets triggered when he goes to Egypt. Right, You're, you have this the the, the war of, of all the the Allied countries against the French Revolution, and um, uh, Napoleon goes to Egypt not as a ridiculous uh, um, uh, example of his complete inability to understand strategic logistics, but as a means of changing the the, the board. Right, he's he's looked at at the way that the powers are aligned against France. He's like, okay, we are uh, in 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 France in the Revolution. We are recreating. Uh, religion. We are recreating uh, time itself. We've begun at year zero. And so I am going to go to Egypt and using the powers of my savants that I have assembled, I am going to literally start recreating the world. And when Napoleon gets there and wakens up uh, Ra and Osiris and Horus and all those guys, as the guy who woke them up, he's the guy who gets to sort of uh, be transfigured as an avatar of um, uh, of whichever probably Horus because he's a war god um, uh, transfigured as the avatar that then leads the magical apocalypse so rather than just uh, France fighting all, all all comers and being beaten back you suddenly have the, uh, the, the the reactionary powers faced with a return of, of the Egyptian gods but instead of, of an attempt to recreate the sort of um, uh, uh, sacred priest uh, kingdom that they had in, in ancient Egypt, their goal is to empower the ideals of the French Revolution as expressed through the, uh, the, the consular period, not through, or the directory, not through uh, either Napoleon's later empire or through the sort of uh, any, uh, the, the, the magical realism of Robespierre or Marat or people like that. So I, I think that what you've got there is you've got a, a system in which uh, the, the British have to turn to uh, their, um, uh, their their nascent magical underground, which is very, very small at that point in, in the late 1790s. You've got some Freemasons. You've got William Blake, obviously, is your guy to talk to about magical apocalypses, since he's written, I think, two of them by then. Um, <laughs> You've got uh, Francis Barrett, the guy who wrote the Magus. In Germany, you have the, the Hex uh, tradition is just sort of uh, growing to fruition. The guys who are going to write um, uh, the, the Long Lost Friend and the Book of Pow Wows are in the process of emigrating to America because they don't want to be involved in the war of the First Coalition. So you have that. And there is that very early beginning of the mystical uh, 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 movements in Russia that will spawn Rasputin and uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and all that horrible stuff uh, later on. So you can sort of see these seeds of magic, but I think what you've got in, in, in this particular case is a situation where 
all of a sudden, instead of France fighting a rearguard action, it's the Allies fighting a rearguard action until they can bring some level of magical uh, uh, throw weight into the war. And I would, personally, I would not, you know, have them try and wake up their own gods or anything, even though the notion of Blake's giants battling Ra and uh, Osiris is, is sort of decorative. I think I might want to have Blake merely be try be the guy who's providing the, uh, he's the Oppenheimer or the Einstein of uh of, of the uh, Manhattan Project that is the uh, the, uh, the the um, uh, the first coalition's uh, attempt to, to to even the score. I, th- I think that's really what you want to do with that. So, so you can see that while sitting around uh, Simon's table a couple of dragon meets ago, hanging out with Ken and talking about stuff like this, I decided we should make this into a podcast. And uh, that's what we've done. So thanks, everybody, for coming to our first uh, live edition of Ken and Robin, and in this case, Simon, talk about stuff. And stuff having once again been talked about, we bid you adieu. So that was our very first live edition of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff from uh, Dragon Meat 2012. Uh, just before we close out, I'd like to uh, clarify something that I uh, said on the fly during the uh, discussion, which was I made it seem as if I think that only Rob Heinzo is a designer of 13th Age, when, of course, his partner in crime and design on that project is Jonathan Tweet. And I should uh, clarify that the war of the first coalition in actual history ended in 1797, and Napoleon's expedition to Egypt, which I made the uh, sort of center post of my uh, nerd-troping uh, card trick, is actually be- the beginning of the war of the second coalition. So if you are scoring at home, uh, I was either um, I, w- I was either wrong or I was anticipatorily right. Uh, And I think we both know what the correct answer to that is. It need not be said. So, stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. DriveThruRPG. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our website, KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com, where you may give us all your oysters. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. Thank you.